Hi, I'm Anna Marie Cox. This is With Friends Like These. For a few months now, we've been looking at good intentions. Why people have them, what happens to them, where they lead. One of the stories I've been most excited to tell is this week's, which I found literally in a footnote in a book about mass incarceration. It's a story of good intentions and pride and politics. And I'll warn you now, it has a not great ending. Also, a suicide is involved. So keep that in mind when you decide whether to listen through right now or save it for later. But I hope you listen now. In observance of Black History Month, we're going to start a segment highlighting organizations that are Black-led or primarily concerned with issues directly affecting Black people. This week's organization was suggested by our guest, Heather Ann Thompson. Just Leadership USA stands out because it's not just advocating for decarceration, but it was founded by a formerly incarcerated person, continues to bring formerly incarcerated people into the organization, and works directly with those who are incarcerated or have been impacted by incarceration. Your money will be an investment in the leadership of the organization as well as the cause itself. And you can donate at their website, www.jlusa.com slash donate. That's www.jlusa.com slash donate. And if you can't donate right now, you can amplify them on Twitter by following and retweeting at Just Leaders USA. That's not leadership, but at Just Leaders USA. And maybe other people you know have money. You can ask Just Leadership USA for help planning a fundraiser, large or small. And they also do calls for volunteers via Twitter. So keep your eyes open for that. That's www.jlusa.com slash donate. In the summer of 1979, a man named Robert Martinson committed suicide by jumping out the window of his 15th floor New York apartment. 20 years before, he'd been a civil rights activist. You could call him a radical. He ran for the mayor of Berkeley as a socialist when it was even more unpopular than it is today. And in 1961, he joined the Freedom Riders in Mississippi and was arrested when his mixed race group refused to leave the whites only section of the Jacksonville bus depot. And that experience changed his life. He wrote in The Nation about the treatment he got and the treatment he observed. He railed against the system. It is impossible to prepare anyone for the humiliating, brutal atmosphere of even the best prison, he wrote. He argued that prisons were so terrible, they backfired. These prisons, he said, would just create more rebels and more activists. Mississippi will learn that it aided the process it set out to hinder. It has educated the ignorant and trained the naive. Martinson went on to become one of the first American academics in the new field of criminology, intent on improving the criminal justice system. And he's also one of the reasons that America has the highest prison population in the world. Robert Martinson was the author of what is now known as the Martinson Report. The study was years in the making, a review of hundreds of other studies on how different rehabilitation programs affected recidivism. For reasons we'll get into later, it wasn't published in an academic journal, but in a political magazine. The report's title asked, What Works? And Martinson's conclusion, which lawmakers eagerly picked up and ran with, was nothing. 
nothing works. It is the first time that people really point to when an American academic throws up his hands and says that the American uh, prison system is a failure in a really profound and uh, categorical or unequivocal sense. That's Heather Ann Thompson, an expert on the history of the American prison system and a professor of African-American studies at the University of Michigan. She's the author of Blood in the Water, the Attica Prison Uprising of 1971 and its legacy. And she's going to be our guide in this story. What is so striking about today when we look back on it is that when we look at a report like Martin's, you might say, well, why do we care about that today? Why do we care what some guy wrote about prisons, you know, in 1974? Why does that even matter? Well, because what he said set in motion a series of events uh, what the decisions we made about those prisons back in 1974, which was effectively to say they were too nice. They were too, we were coddling prisoners back then. We needed to get tougher because rehabilitation was a failure. Set in motion a series of events that made prisons so much worse than what I just described. And that is why it is so important we do this autopsy. That's why it's so important that we take this moment and say, what did he mean when he said rehabilitation doesn't work? How do we know that Martinson felt the weight of his actions? Literally weeks before his death, he published another article, this one in an obscure journal. And in it, you can hear him wrestling with what has happened. About that first report, he writes, I thought it was important that the conclusion be made public and debated. It was surely debated. I protested the slogan used by the media to sum up what I said. The press had no time for scientific quibbling. He points to new research, which emphasizes something different. That recidivism maybe isn't the problem. That the problem is prisons themselves. And he says of that original report, I withdraw that conclusion. So let's pull back a little and talk about what the political and academic atmosphere was when Martinson started his research in the mid to late 1960s. And when it comes to criminal justice reform, the partisan lines weren't quite the same as they are today. In 1966, Winthrop Rockefeller runs for governor of Arkansas as a Republican on a platform that highlights prison reform. This is from his inauguration speech. And last, but certainly not least, no burden rests more heavily on the conscience of the people of Arkansas hour by hour than a prison system regarded by professional penologists as being generally the worst in the United States. The need for major reforms within what we call our correctional institutions is so pressing that I will ask the legislature to give it the very highest priority. As governor, I will put maximum emphasis on clearing up deplorable conditions within our prisons 
our probation and parole system. And let's hear Heather on this precipitous moment in history. There's another significant element to the timing of the Martinson report, which is that it comes on the heels of a period of time that most of us identify as the civil rights era in general, and that we think about as a civil rights movement that took place in the streets of everything from Selma to uh, Chicago. But it's also a moment that was a civil rights moment in prisons. And it was uh, a moment where we saw um, governors in the South, such as Winthrop Rockefeller, but also uh, uh, prisoners in Arkansas uh, and uh, prison wardens such as Tom Merton and uh, prisoners in the North, like at Attica, all demanding better conditions in prisons and the courts really responding to that. This is a period when we saw the passage of greater civil liberties for, um, you know, vis-a-vis the police, but also, you know, a limitation on how much solitary confinement people could do in prisons, Um, a guarantee that prisoners would have religious freedoms behind bars, uh, and, you know, certain protections for visitation behind bars, and so forth and so on. So... In 1967, when Martinson is asked, along with another young sociologist, to produce a study for New York State, the atmosphere is one of possibility. The New York State Governor's Commission on Criminal Offenders asks Martinson to find, quote, imaginative new approaches to criminal justice and look for, quote, any way we can rehabilitate more of these criminal offenders and reduce the number of repeaters. But The report itself doesn't come out in wide release for another seven years. Why? Well, a former student of Martinson's puts it this way. He became entangled in a legalistic, emotional, and interpersonal web of discord that would last for years. The gist of the fight is that everyone starts arguing about who should get credit for the report. Martinson winds up as the primary author because he argues the hardest and the longest. He's willing to do whatever it takes. He cares the most. So, we shouldn't be too surprised that once he gets permission to publish it as his own, he desperately wants the most attention possible. He arranges to have it published outside academic circles in the public interest. That's the name of the magazine. It's written in a relatively conversational style. His former student says that Martinson, quote, jumped at the opportunity to drop what he knew would be a bombshell. And now a quick break to hear from our sponsors. With Friends Like These is brought to you by Magic Spoon. I've noticed the defining characteristic of the COVID era is never knowing quite what day it is or what time it is. It's just all pandemic time. I try to keep track of things with rituals, like I do yoga every night before bed. I have certain TV shows I only watch on the weekends, and I try to have breakfast every day, although sometimes I have it at night. But that's okay, too, because my breakfast cereal is Magic Spoon, and there's no sugar rush. It's basically a high-protein, actually good-for-you cereal. And Magic Spoon has now released a brand-new variety pack featuring peanut butter. 
They released peanut butter as a limited edition flavor in 2020, and it sold out three times. It's gotten so much love, they've added it to that variety pack along with their other bestsellers, Frosted, Fruity, Cinnamon, and Cocoa. Now, all of the Magic Spoon cereals have zero sugar, 13 to 14 grams of protein, and only four net grams of carbs in each serving. And if calories are a thing for you, they only have 40 per serving of those. It is keto-friendly, gluten-free, grain-free, and soy-free. Now, peanut butter is basically my favorite flavor of anything, but you can make it even better in Magic Spoon World by mixing it with the cocoa flavor. You have a peanut butter cup in your bowl. And if you mix peanut butter and cinnamon, I think it tastes like a churro, although I know churros don't have peanut butter in them. So... Go to magicspoon.com slash WFLT to grab a variety pack and try it today. And be sure to use the promo code WFLT at checkout to save $5 off your order. Magic Spoon is so confident in their product, it's backed by a 100% happiness guarantee. If you don't like it for any reason, they'll refund your money, no questions asked. Remember, get your next delicious bowl of guilt-free cereal at magicspoon.com slash WFLT and use code WFLT to save $5 off. With Friends Like These is brought to you by Olipop. Olipop is soda for people that don't want to bounce off the walls. It has fantastic nostalgic flavors like vintage cola, classic root beer, orange squeeze, cherry vanilla, strawberry vanilla, and my favorite, ginger lemon. There's no sugar, corn syrup, or aspartame. Olipop is made with natural ingredients you can feel good about. And the ginger lemon, my favorite, it isn't sweet like ginger ale. It has some bite to it and tang. I also really like the cola flavor, even though I hate regular Coke. It's also not too sweet and has some subtlety to it. You can taste layers of caramel and toffee and other things besides sugar and Coke. Their ingredients combine the benefits of prebiotics, plant fiber, and botanicals to support your microbiome and benefit digestive health. If you care about sugar, and I do, mainly because I like to eat sugar on purpose and not just because it's in something that doesn't need to be sweet, then you should know this. Olipop is much lower in sugar than conventional sodas with only two to five grams of sugar from natural sources, no added sugar. Their vintage cola just has two grams as compared to regular Coca-Cola, which has 39 grams of sugar. Their orange squeeze has five grams of sugar compared to orange Fanta, which has 44 grams of sugar. They're so confident that you will love their products. They offer a 100% money back guarantee for orders placed through the website. And we've worked out an exclusive deal for with friends like these podcast listeners. Receive 20% off plus free shipping on their best selling variety pack. This is a great way to try all the delicious flavors. Go to drinkolipop.com slash friends or use code friends at checkout to claim this deal. That's D-R-I-N-K-O-L-I pop.com slash friends. The discount is only valid for the variety pack. Olipop can also be found in over 3,000 stores across the country, including Whole Foods, Sprouts, Kroger's, Wegmans, and Air One. But you're going to want to buy it online. That way, you're supporting the show, and I cannot tell you how important referrals are to keep the show going. And you can get that money back guarantee, which is not available if you buy it at a store. So drinkolipop.com slash friends. And back to our story about Robert Martinson. A lot changes in America between 1967 and 1974. Heck, a lot changed between 1967 and 1968. 
Just to give one example, one you might be familiar with. In recent years, crime in this country has grown nine times as fast as population. At the current rate, the crimes of violence in America will double by 1972. We cannot accept that kind of future for America. We owe it to the decent and law-abiding citizens of America to take the offensive against the criminal forces that threaten their peace and their security, and to rebuild respect for law across this country. I pledge to you, the wave of crime is not going to be the wave of the future in America. That's Richard Nixon in a campaign ad, in case you didn't recognize it. Here's Heather again on this context. So what is significant also about the Martinson Report is that by the time we get to 1974, there is a backlash, not just to the civil rights movement in the streets, there is a serious backlash to the civil rights movement behind bars, to this idea that there should even be a prisoner rights movement, that there should even have, that prisoners should even have any rights. So... While Martinson is engrossed in his battle over the report, the audience for it changes. What they want from research about prison changes. People are no longer really blue-skying it. They want to solve the issue of crime. And so when Martinson publishes a report that basically says that rehabilitation is a failure, it hits at an exact moment when conservatives are fed up to their eyeballs with this idea that prisoners should have any special treatment because they have just seen prisoners protest at Attica, at Folsom Prison in California, at Cummins Prison in, you know, Arkansas. So they're done with prisoners demanding things like decent food and decent medical care. And for whatever reason... Martinson doesn't seem to read the room, or maybe this is a better way to put it. He reads the room all too well. On the heels of the report, Martinson becomes about as famous as an American academic can be. He gets interviewed on TV and in newspapers and People magazine of all places. He makes a couple of documentaries. And he doesn't sound like someone interested in making the system more just or more kind. Here he is on CBS Evening News a couple years after the study comes out, serving as a talking head for a story about juvenile justice in particular. The juvenile justice system today uh, does not do an adequate job. All these kids seem to know about the criminal justice system is that they're talked to. They're talked to by judges, by probation officers, by correctional uh, counselors. What they really need, it seems to me, is uh, certainty of being caught and certainty of being punished. It seems almost the opposite of what he wrote after he was in jail. He's completely flipped his perspective. He no longer thinks of himself as someone who is inside the system. He's on the outside trying to make it better. And he probably thinks of himself as a liberal still because this focus on whether or not rehabilitation works becomes the way that liberals talk about prisons too. The more liberal response to it was indeed to think that, uh, no, that the report was wrong, that in fact, rehabilitation was not a failure, 
that it could be resurrected, that um, that Martinson was wrong, that the report was wrong, and that not only was it wrong, but that the goal was to make prison uh, much better, that it could be perfected. Notice that that is with already conceding the ground that we are, we are within limited options here, which is conceding that we put human beings in cages. And so once they're in the cage, are there in fact better or worse ways to treat them? Yes. Talking solely about fixing rehabilitation, as Heather points out, also ignores the fact that there are sure a lot more of one type of person that seems to need rehabilitation. I mean, is it just complete happenstance that there is uh, this, you know, notable disproportionality of poor people, this notable disproportionality of people of color. Uh, these are the questions that are that don't figure particularly into this question of why is rehabilitation a success or a failure. If there is a criticism of the Martinson report, frankly, it isn't, it isn't his criticism of the prison system vis-a-vis its inability to fix people or his criticism that prisons themselves can't fix social harm. That's absolutely correct and right on. The criticism of the Martinson report is that he missed the fundamental real problem with the justice system, which is that it has always had unequal justice under the law. Robert Martinson lives long enough to see the Nixon administration declare a war on drugs. He sees the prison population boom. He sees the number of prisons boom. Sentences get longer and parole is curtailed. He sees the increasing impact of these policies on Black people. And he writes, I withdraw that conclusion. And it was something. But it wasn't enough. We'll break in here for a few more ads. I have been drinking super coffee for months now. The blended drinks are convenient and so much less sugary and empty calories than what you'd get at a drive-thru. But I'll tell you what I really like is their sweet cream creamer and the ground coffee, both of which make my coffee habit a little easier on my body. The ground coffee is not over-flavored and the sweet cream is sweet, but without sugar. And I'm a huge fan of their mocha flavor in general, both as the ground coffee and as the the mixed drink, because it's mocha-y and not straight up chocolate flavored. If I want chocolate, I'll eat chocolate. I want mocha, and this tastes like mocha. Super Coffee is made to power your entire day with its unique blend of caffeine, healthy fats, and protein that provide a sustained jitter-free energy with no crash. It's naturally sweetened and contains zero grams of added sugar, 10 grams of protein, and only 80 calories per bottle. You can compare this to Starbucks, and no matter what your health concerns are, it's not a good comparison. Frappuccinos are for people who want a cheesecake but cannot admit it. Have a cheesecake. If you want a specialty coffee, have some super coffee. Super coffee is keto-friendly, lactose-free, and gluten-free. And let me tell you a little about the company. It was founded out of Shark Tank and recently named the fastest growing beverage company in America by Inc. Magazine. Notable investors include Jennifer Lopez and Aaron Rodgers, who seems to make much better off the field business decisions than Tom Brady. He has that going for him. Super Coffee has a 60-day money-back guarantee, meaning if you don't love it, you get your money back, no questions asked. 
And we have worked out an exclusive deal for, with friends like these podcast listeners, receive 25% off plus free shipping on any of their best-selling variety packs. This is a great way to try all their delicious flavors, which include hazelnut, caramel, mocha, like I said, and vanilla. Go to drinksupercoffee.com slash friends or use code friends at checkout to claim this deal. That is D-R-I-N-K-S-U-P-E-R-C-O-F-F-E-E.com slash friends. Super Coffee is also available nationwide in over 25,000 stores like Target, Whole Foods, Walmart, Kroger, and CVS, but you're going to want to order online. That's drinksupercoffee.com slash friends. With Friends Like These is brought to you by Word Collect. So it's the end of the winter, and if you're like me, your body is starting to take the shape of the couch. My advice, get off the couch, go for a walk. But even worse than my body taking the shape of the couch my brain is taking the shape of the couch. So my advice about that, get off the couch, go for a walk, and take your brain for a jog as well. Once you've gotten back from that walk, sit somewhere new and play Word Collect. Word Collect plays like Scrabble, but without the board. You get tiles and you have to make as many words as you can. It starts out easy, but gets hard. There are over 2,000 levels, so it gets really, really hard, but... Good news. Word Collect is offering you 2,500 coins and 500 gems when you download and play. You can use those to level up. You can use those to play a little longer. You might even get to those 2,000 levels. I find that if I don't doom scroll and instead play a word game, I feel sharper and I feel better. Just go to Apple or Google Store and search for Word Collect. Remember, if you download now, you'll get 2,500 coins and 500 gems to play longer, level up, or just feel like you have something in the bank. Word Collect. Download it now. And now, the rest of the story. There are multiple layers of tragedy here. There's the fact that a man who started his career trying to revolutionize the criminal justice system in a liberatory way becomes the reason it's so fucked up. It's also a tragedy because the report itself contains the seed of a really good idea. It contains an idea that is quite revolutionary, one that Martinson seems to dance around, but Heather Thompson doesn't. And I actually think that this is where Martinson actually sat, is that rehabilitation was a failure, not because people were hopeless, not because people were irredeemable, but because prisons themselves were not the place where you were going to save people. Prisons themselves were not the place where you were going to fix people. That prisons themselves were these broken institutions. And inherently in there was this kind of radical gem that ends up weirdly getting kind of hijacked by the conservatives, but I think in fact was very radical. And and we now see that today as being kind of picked up by this abolitionist impulse that I actually think is really deeply embedded in in Martinson's uh, logics that we've completely overlooked. We've completely missed it. He believed uh, that prisons were not good places. He actually argues that rehabilitation is a bad is is a failure because prisons need to go away not because human beings in those prisons are flawed and irredeemable 
With that perspective in mind, it's possible to hear Martinson's arguments, even from when he was at his most influential as a talking head, with a subversive undertone. This is from a documentary he made a year or so before he died. It's about a composite character, Shotgun Joe, who is supposed to represent the chronic recidivist. In some ways, the story of Shotgun Joe is, has become a symbol of the, the evil of the criminal justice system. The concept of the revolving door, which uh, implies that once a kid gets into the system, he's simply doomed to return again and again. But evidence suggests that this idea is largely mythical. A substantial majority of all offenders, adult or juvenile, do not, in fact, return. Of course, there is a small group who become acclimated to this cell and to uh, this institution, and, and they do return. Shotgun Joe, unfortunately, is one of these. I mean, he lives here, he's successful here, this is his uh, home. Now you ask me, uh, what do we do with Joe? And I really have to say that I don't know. I'm not sure. You see, this is one of the prices that we pay for, for having institutions like these. But if there is a solution for Joe, I think it somehow lies in luring him out of his iron home with some kind of opportunities. And certainly not in making this place a more comfortable home for him to live in. Now, this process will be difficult and probably frustrating. But somehow, I think it is worth the effort. Now, you really have to hunt to hear the radical message there. You have to hunt too hard, really. But Heather, who I trust more than anyone else on this says that finding a radical message and recovering it is important. We have to hear the possibilities that open up when we say rehabilitation doesn't work, rather than choose to just shut everything down. Uh, we actually took the wrong message from that moment at enormous, enormous cost to our society. Because today, all the things that were wrong with that system have exponentially gotten worse. We now have many more people in a system that is much worse. So we do need to go back to that exact moment and say, what did he mean when he said rehabilitation doesn't work? What did he mean when he said the prison system is failing? And what should have happened at that moment that did not? Because we are exactly at that moment again when in this moment, people are once again saying, prisons don't work. It's still not working. What should we do? And if we're not careful, we will once again get it wrong and, you know, at our peril. So this is all pretty depressing, I guess. Except for one thing. Something has changed since the 1970s about who is doing the critiquing of the system. It's no longer white sociologists or no longer just white sociologists. The activists have picked up the baton in this era and they're more likely to be people of color. They're more likely to have been impacted by the system rather than just study it. And here's Heather. One last time. 
reflecting not just on Martinson, but the whole prison reform movement that he came out of. I mean, I just think there was just a generation of people who uh, tried to make a difference. And then the 80s come along and there's just such a tide of hatred and and, uh, punitiveness and um, ugliness, frankly, that comes along in the 80s and 90s. And I don't know, you know, I'm not a psychologist or a psychiatrist. I don't know what the impact of that is, but I do know that if you look at people's biographies and uh, you know autobiographies, I think that was a profoundly uh, dispiriting and uh, troubling time for a lot of people because it actually made them question so much. It made them ask themselves: Did they make enough of a difference? Did they do enough? Did they did they get it right? Did they say enough? Because it's like looking at all of your life's work and saying it didn't matter. In fact, the tide that rolled over what you did was so much more powerful than what you did. And yet, um, if they could have hung on, you know, that's kind of one of the heartbreaking parts about this. You know, what they would have seen actually is that what came then was uh, a pretty remarkable picking up of that baton and um, a pretty remarkable repudiation of this punitive moment, um, actually led by the people from inside which is uh, pretty uplifting, actually, that, that the people who were impacted most negatively by all that came after that Martinson report have kind of circled, come full circle back to his, what I believe was his original contention, which is that prisons are meant to break people. They are meant to destroy people. Uh, and that they can't do anything other than do that. And therefore, they themselves uh, must be dismantled. And that is it for our show. This podcast is a production of Crooked Media. It is produced by Allison Herrera with assistance from Izzy Margulies. This episode was engineered by Louis Lino. Whitney Pastrick is looking forward to leaving the house again someday. I also look forward to seeing people in person, to giving people hugs in person, and being able to tell people in person what I always say to you, take care of yourselves. <laughs>